Hello, and welcome to day 11 of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to be reading you the whole of Le Miserable. That's the podcast. If you've been enjoying it so far, please do leave us a review or rate the show on iTunes. For now, though, prepare to hear why Monsignor Muriel was not well-loved among his peers, and how he fell out, briefly, with one of his brothers. Enjoy! Miserable, Volume 1, Fontine, Book the First, A Just Man, Chapter 11, A Restriction. We should incur a great risk of deceiving ourselves were we to conclude from this that Monsignor Welcome was a philosophical bishop or a patriotic curé. His meeting, which may almost be designated as his union with conventionary Jay, left behind it in his mind a sort of astonishment which rendered him still more gentle. That is all. Although Monsignor Bienvenu was far from being a politician, this is, perhaps, the place to indicate very briefly what his attitude was in the events of that epoch, supposing that Monsignor Bienvenu ever dreamed of having an attitude. Let us, then, go back a few years. Sometime after the elevation of Monsignor Muriel to the episcopate, the emperor had made him a baron of the emperor in company with many other bishops. The arrest of the Pope took place, as everyone knows, on the night of the 5th to the 6th of July, 1809. On this occasion, Monsignor Muriel was summoned by Napoleon to the Synod of the Bishops of France and Italy, convened at Paris. This Synod was held at Notre Dame, and assembled for the first time on the 15th of June, 1811, under the presidency of Cardinal Fesch. Monsignor Muriel was one of the 95 bishops who attended it, but he was present only at one sitting and at three or four private conferences. Bishop of a mountain diocese, living so very close to nature, in rusticity and deprivation, it appeared that he imported among these eminent personages ideas which altered the temperature of the assembly. He very soon returned to Dean. He was interrogated as to this speedy return, and he replied, I embarrassed them. The outside air penetrated to them through me. I produced on them the effect of an open door. On another occasion, he said, What would you have? Those gentlemen are princes. I am only a poor peasant bishop. The fact is that he displeased them. Among other strange things, it is said that he chanced to remark one evening, when he found himself at the house of one of his most notable colleagues, What beautiful clocks! What beautiful carpets! What beautiful liveries! They must be a great trouble. I would not have all those superfluities, crying incessantly in my ears. There are people who are hungry. There are people who are cold. There are poor people. There are poor people. Let us remark, by the way, that the hatred of luxury is not an intelligent hatred. This hatred would involve the hatred of the arts. Nevertheless, in churchmen, luxury is wrong, except in connection with representations and ceremonies. It seems to reveal habits which have very little that is charitable about them. An opulent priest is a contradiction. Priest must keep close to the poor. Now, can one come in contact incessantly, night and day, with all this distress, all these misfortunes, and this poverty, without having about one's person a little of that misery like the dust of labour? Is it possible to imagine a man near a brazier who is not warm? 
Can one imagine a workman who is working near a furnace, and who has neither a singed hair, nor blackened nails, nor a drop of sweat, nor a speck of ashes on his face? The first proof of charity in the priest, in the bishop especially, is poverty. This is, no doubt, what the Bishop of Dean thought. It must not be supposed, however, that he shared what we call the ideas of the century on certain delicate points. He took very little part in the theological quarrels of the moment, and maintained silence on questions in which the church and state were implicated. But if he had been strongly pressed, it seems that he would have been found to be an ultramontane rather than a Gallican. Since we are making a portrait, and since we do not wish to conceal anything, we are forced to add that he was glacial towards Napoleon in his decline. Beginning with 1813, he gave in all his adherence to, or applauded all hostile manifestations. He refused to see him, as he passed through on his return from the island of Elba, and he abstained from ordering public prayers for the emperor in his diocese during the Hundred Days. Besides his sister, Mademoiselle Baptistine, he had two brothers, one a general, the other a prefect. He wrote to both with tolerable frequency. He was harsh for a time towards the former, because, holding a command in Provence at the epoch of the disembarkation at Cannes, the general had put himself at the head of twelve hundred men, and had pursued the emperor as though the latter had been a person whom one is desirous of allowing to escape. His correspondence with the other brother, the ex-prefect, a fine, worthy man who lived in retirement at Paris, Rue Cassette, remained more affectionate. Thus, Monseigneur Bienvenu also had his hour of party spirit, his hour of bitterness, his cloud. The shadow of the passions of the moment traversed this grand and gentle spirit, occupied with eternal things. Certainly, such a man would have done well not to entertain any political opinions. Let there be no mistake as to our meaning. We are not confounding what is called political opinions with the grand aspirations for progress, with the sublime faith, patriotic, democratic, humane, which in our day should be the very foundation of every generous intellect. Without going deeply into questions which are only indirectly connected with the subject of this book, we will simply say this. It would have been well if Monseigneur Bienvenu had not been a royalist, and if his glance had never been, for a single instinct, turned away from that serene contemplation in which is distinctly discernible, above the fictions and the hatreds of this world, above the stormy vicissitudes of human beings, the beaming of those three pure radiances, truth, justice, and charity. While admitting that it was not for a political office that God created Monsignor Welcome, we should have understood and admired his protest in the name of right and liberty, his proud opposition, his just but perilous resistance to the all-powerful Napoleon. But that which pleases us in people who are rising pleases us less in the case of people who are falling. We only love the fray so long as there is danger, and in any case, the combatants of the first hour have alone the right to be the exterminators of the last. He who has not been a stubborn accuser in prosperity should hold his peace in the face of ruin. The denunciator of success is the only legitimate executioner of the fall. As for us, when providence intervenes and strikes, we let it work. 1812 commenced to disarm us. In 1813, the cowardly breach of silence of that taciturn legislative body, emboldened by catastrophe, possessed only traits which aroused indignation. And it was a crime to applaud, in 1814, 
in the presence of those marshals who betrayed, in the presence of that senate which passed from one dunghill to another, insulting after having deified, in the presence of that idolatry which was losing its footing and spitting on its idol, it was a duty to turn aside the head. In 1815, when the supreme disasters filled the air, when France was seized with a shiver at their sinister approach, when Waterloo could be dimly discerned opening before Napoleon, the mournful acclamation of the army and the people to the condemned of destiny had nothing laughable in it, and, after making all allowance for the despot, a heart like that of the Bishop of Dean ought not perhaps to have failed to recognise the august and touching features presented by the embrace of a great nation and a great man on the brink of the abyss. With this exception, he was in all things just, true, equitable, intelligent, humble and dignified, beneficent and kindly, which is only another sort of benevolence. He was a priest, a sage and a man. It must be admitted that even in the political views with which we have just reproached him, and which we are disposed to judge almost with severity, he was tolerant and easy. More so, perhaps, than we who are speaking here. The porter of the town hall had been placed there by the emperor. He was an old, non-commissioned officer of the old guard, a member of the Legion of Honour at Austerlitz, as much of a Bonapartist as the eagle. This poor fellow occasionally let slip inconsiderate remarks, which the law then stigmatised as seditious speeches. After the imperial profile disappeared from the Legion of Honour, he never dressed himself in his regimentals, as he said, so that he should not be obliged to wear his cross. He had himself devoutly removed the imperial effigy from the cross which Napoleon had given him. This made a hole, and he would not put anything in its place. I will die! he said, rather than wear the three frogs upon my heart. He liked to scoff aloud at Louis XVIII. The gouty old creature in English gaiters, he said. Let him take himself off to Prussia with that cue of his. He was happy to combine in the same imprecation the two things which he most attested, Prussia and England. He did it so often that he lost his place. There he was, turned out of the house, with his wife and children, and without bread. The bishop sent for him, reproved him gently, and appointed him beadle in the cathedral. In the course of nine years, Monseigneur Bienvenu had, by dint of holy deeds and gentle manners, filled the town of Dean with a sort of tender and filial reverence. Even his conduct towards Napoleon had been accepted and tacitly pardoned, as it were, by the people, the good and weakly flock who adored their emperor, but loved their bishop. 